to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to the first episode of Season 4 of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host, Rick Lee, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Lee M. Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. How are you all today? I'm doing pretty good. It is actually very tornado-y outside. I don't know if that's a term that people use in other parts of the country, but in the South, we all know what it means when we say it's tornado-y outside. (laughs) N-E-M, (laughs) N-E-M. We're not in Memphis anymore, Toto. (laughs) (laughs) And Charles, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's a little rainy here in Northeast Ohio, and the temperatures are going to go like balls cold over the next 24 hours. So it's going to be an icy wonderland in Oberlin, Ohio. Well, today... Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to make an icy balls joke, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) His heart was cold, but his balls were colder. (laughs) Fun fact... The genitals are the warmest part of the human body. Welcome to season four, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) You come for the philosophy, you stay for the genital facts. (laughs) What are we talking about today, Rick? Today, we decided that since we record this in a bar in a hotel, one thing we've never talked about is why the three of us appreciate bars, the meaning uh, that bars have in U.S. society. And so today we're talking about bars. But before we get there, I wanted to introduce you. I came in a little bit early this week. We have a new bartender, Noelle. I found out she's getting a graduate degree in art history. And so far, she seems pretty cool. So, Lee? Noel, Noel, Lee, what are you drinking, Lee, and what are you ranting and raving about? So I am going to have, this is my bartender test, I'm going to order my usual of Fireball and Diet Coke, and I'm going to see if she can serve it to me without making fun of my drink. So, Noel, that's what I'll be having. <laughs> uh, this week, I am ranting about Joe Rogan. I want to say that I'm really ranting about Joe Rogan as a category of person. So I think there are other people like this. I put Jordan Peterson in this group. I put Tucker Carlson in this group. But these white boys that for some reason have been convinced at some point in their life that they are extremely smart and have convinced all other white boys that they're extremely smart. I just want to remind everybody that the Joe Rogans of the world are just not smart. (laughs) They're not smart. Stop. Stop (laughs) puffing them up. They are not smart. My rave for this week is a television miniseries by Shonda Rhimes. It's on Netflix. That's called Inventing Anna. Inventing Anna is the story of Anna Delvey, who was a scam artist. She pitched herself to the New York elite as a German heiress, which she was not. She was a fake German heiress. Shonda Rhimes has done a really great miniseries about the Anna Delvey story, and you definitely should check it out. But I also want to say that this is a callback to an episode that we did. I think it was in season two. It was episode 27, I think, uh, where we did an episode on The Hustle, and Anna Delvey was one of the people that we talked about. So uh, you heard it here first, folks. So all of you who are obsessed with Anna Delvey, that's all news for us here at the hotel bar. All hail the fake German heiress. <laughs> Noel, this is my friend Charles, Charles Noel. What are you drinking and ranting and raving about, Charles? Welcome, Noel. Glad to have you on board. Uh, let's see if you can run the gauntlet. I will be having a feather billet which is a fantastic tequila and rose syrup drink with a little bit of bitters and some lime. It's really fantastic. And if, Noel, you can take care of that, you will have me in the palm of your hand for the rest of this season is all I'm saying. (laughs) Throw a couple of icy balls in there. (laughs) Throw a couple of icy balls in there. Shaken, not stirred. I am ranting about the college application process. Now, this definitely is a little bit of when I was a boy, but the two-page college application that I filled out back in front 
I don't even remember if I had to get recommendations, was far simpler than the gauntlet of Byzantine bureaucratic paperwork and process and preparation that contemporary students have to go through. And I feel bad for the students because it's like your senior year, you've worked really hard for four years, well, most students have, and you're looking forward Mm -hmm. to relaxing a little bit. No, you have way more work than you've ever encountered having to do in your entire academic career crunched into three months of time. So I really feel bad for the students that have to go through this. And a part of me feels like this is just another way that private interests have found to grift more money out of the average American household. So So true. So I'm so ranting about the contemporary college application process. Having said that, my rave is my oldest son just received his acceptance letter to my alma mater. Morehouse College. I'm very happy for him. It's in his top three. So he's been accepted to two out of his top three choices. He's waiting for the third one, but I'm very happy for him. And I'm looking forward to seeing what choices he's going to make going forward. You must be proud of that little book. Very, very, not so little. That little book eats up a lot of my food, wears my clothing, asks for money, uses the key to my car. Yeah, that that little book has become quite the the encyclopedia. (laughs) Nice. Well, I'm going to follow Charles in my drink order. This is something I've actually never had, but it came across my cocktail news feed recently. And it's basically a Negroni with tequila. And it has various names, but the one I like the best is Rosita. So I will have a Rosita. This week, I'm afraid that I may have already raved in this direction, but I'm going to rave about Shirley Horn. You all know that I listen to a lot of jazz vocalists, and I am just really struck by both the incredible clarity of her voice, and I think, I mean, I don't want to start a fight, but I think her scat is the best I've ever heard. You are trying to start a fight, my friend. (laughs) You are definitely trying. It's going to be some table moving, some furniture shuffling and some table moving. You keep this up. (laughs) Lee, hold my fancy cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) I've got popcorn at the ready over here. (laughs) This week, I am ranting about the weather forecast called Wintry Mix. (laughs) Look, as a native Chicagoan, I'm used to cold. I'm used to there being a ton of snow from time to time. But I really hate whenever the forecast wintry mix comes up, because that means that it will start raining. And then you'll get a segment of freezing rain just to make the sidewalks and streets really nice and slick. And then we'll layer on top of that a nice, like, six to eight inches of snow. Hate wintry mix. (laughs) It's just winter rebranding itself. (laughs) Yeah, big winter call us. So, Charles, you're in the hot seat this week. Um, I know we're talking about bars, but why are you thinking about it? Oh, because I'm always thinking about drinking. No, just (laughs) after a long day of conferencing and thinking and and talking and debating, why is there the rush to the bar? It seems to me that the bar is this magnet of American society that draws most of us, right? Because a lot of people don't drink or they don't like the atmosphere. But I would gather the vast majority of Americans enjoy that space. And I want to explore what that space means in the context of our society in terms of questions of labor. I want to find out what it means in terms of questions of identity, right? Because we have different types of bars that people go to and have particular features. I'd love to find out what makes this type of bar this type of bar versus that type of bar being that type of bar. And also, because we make a lot of popular cultural references, I'd love to talk about what the bar means within popular media, whether it be novels or music television, film. So I am obsessed with bars. I absolutely love them. And I hope you share my love too. So Charles, you mentioned in your introduction, the role that the hotel bar plays in conference settings. And I wanted to throw it to you, Lee. Why do you think the hotel bar 
has such an important role for some people in academic conference settings? I'm going to answer that, but I want to first tell a story about how this podcast got its name. So when this podcast was getting started, the whole idea was that we wanted to have the kinds of conversations that philosophers have that are not teaching or presenting a paper. So the normal conversations that we have, and one of the things that we were thinking about was how at conferences, this is a common practice that at the end of the day, everybody meets up at the hotel bar and shoots the shit. Obviously, we were going through lots of different names, nothing really stuck. And I was talking to my partner. Your what, Jolly? I was talking to my wife, Cassandra. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, babe. I was talking to my wife, Cassandra. Someone's got some questions to answer. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was telling her this. I was like, I'm having a really hard time coming up with a name for this podcast. This is what we want it to be like, you know, where we meet up at the hotel bar and we shoot the shit. We want the conversations to be like that. And she just turned around and said, that's what you should call it. Hotel bar. I think she said hotel bar chat. And I was like, hmm, I don't like chat. Uh, and so we went through a few and she, and she finally said hotel bar sessions. And I was like, that is perfect. And that's been the name since the very beginning. So love you, babe. Thanks for the podcast title. But again, this is why this podcast is called hotel bar sessions. It's hard for me to accurately describe what those hotel bar sessions are actually like between philosophers. It is true that we're all a little drunk, (laughs) we're all a little loose, but it's also a place where we can try out ideas, where we can sort of take positions that are not necessarily positions that we hold, even if it's just for the sake of poking at someone else. We can get loud and argumentative, we can work through muddled or confused or often quite stupid ideas together to discover that they're muddled, confused, or stupid. But more importantly, it is very frequently a time where we realize things that we may not have realized before. I assume that you both have had these kinds of conversations. I mean, is that track with your experience? It's stupid ideas. I feel seen. (laughs) (laughs) I like how, Lee, you put it when we're not presenting or we're not teaching. Right. Yeah. And for me, and I don't mean this in a cynical way, but those are performative moments. Right. Right. When you're standing in front of your class or you're standing in front of your peers and you're reading a paper and you know that you're being consciously, intentionally judged and considered in terms of what you're saying and how you're presenting your thought. So it seems to me that the hotel bar becomes a place where we can do this activity that we love to do, where I think most of us love to do, or we find some affinity for, but we can do it without being objectively Mm. observed. And we can do it in relationship to our peers instead of doing it for our peers. So we're a little drunk, we're a little loose, the togas come out. (laughs) That actually may not be like a a bad name for like the next iteration of this toga party. We'll get all Joe Rogan's listeners. That's right. We'll get all Joe Rogan's listeners. But we can actually experiment. It becomes a laboratory, if you will, where we can think and talk and I think engage with each other as subjective beings, as people with personalities and various characteristics. I think I agree wholeheartedly with what both of you have said. There is one feature that hasn't come up yet. And I mean, maybe... I'm bad at this, but it's really only at conferences that I get to see my friends who are not my colleagues Mm. and don't live in my city. You know, like Lee, you and I, I think probably first met in a hotel bar. For for most (laughs) of our relationship, it's been at conferences at hotel bars. And so I think that looseness, sure, alcohol helps a lot, but I think it's the friendship that's there. Sticking on this question of friendship, it's also a moment where, you know, you might have been at someone's paper and either the speaker themselves or someone asked a question in the audience, you kind of resonated and you start walking out of that room And without even having to decide or think about it, you suddenly realize you're walking to the bar. (laughs) And you carry on that conversation then in the bar, in this informal setting, and lots of new friendships develop that are also built around a shared seriousness about certain questions, certain ways of thinking, certain traditions, and so on but a seriousness that is not the opposite of joy and and fun. 
And I think the hotel bar is crucial for that. And I want to point out, and maybe this is not the time to talk about it, but for me, it's important that it's not in someone's house or room or apartment, that that space has a unique characteristic to it. I'm glad that you said that the conversations that happen at the hotel bar between philosophers at conferences are serious conversations, but seriousness in the way that's, as you said, not the opposite of joyful I do think that they are different than the conversations that I have at bars, regular bars Mm. with friends, which can sometimes be serious and serious in the way that's also not the opposite of joyful. But because when we say the hotel bar, we're referring to this very specific milieu that academics are in, that philosophers are in, where almost nobody is on their own turf Everybody's from out of town. Everybody's rekindling friendships that, as you said, quite often are only kindled at the hotel bars. But it's still the case that we're all philosophers. And it's very, very, very infrequent that we get the opportunity to sit around with only philosophers in a non-professional setting. Or, I mean, and even though this is at a conference, when you're at the bar, exactly as Charles said, I'm not performing. There's probably very few academic fields where it's more awkward than to be a philosopher outside of other philosophers. Like to me, that's the greatest way to shut down a conversation when people ask me, well, what do you do for a living? Oh, I teach philosophy. (laughs) Oh. So what's the meaning of life? Yeah, exactly. But it's that one place where the sense of being sort of aberrant is not there. So I think that's also what allows for the flow of ideas and the flow of thought and the relaxation um, occur. And you also have all the same shared references. So you don't need to explain, you don't have to unpack literally everything as you might in a neighborhood bar. Everybody has the same shared references. And this is sometimes what I find most impressive about the conversations that happen in the hotel bar is how quickly they move, how quickly they progress, because we can just get rid of all that filler stuff. (laughs) You know, for colleges and universities that will support the travel of their faculty, it's now almost exclusively the case that they'll support that only if you're giving a paper at a conference, Mm -hmm. which now means that all of our academic conferences, the audience is made up of people who are also giving papers. And I think there's something a little short-sighted about that precisely because of the qualities of these kinds of conversations that we've been talking about, that it would be really great for me to be able to go to a conference where I'm not giving a paper that might further my research or bring new research projects into my head or involve me in a collaboration with other people on some projects. I think that all of these positive qualities of the hotel bar at academic conferences are slightly lessened by the fact that the participation is not as wide as I believe it used to be. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. One of my favorite things to do and one of my favorite types of bars is to travel to pubs when I'm traveling in the UK, when I'm in England or or Wales or whatever. And I love like the average bar and this sense, this working class bar in terms of certainly thinking about E.P. Thompson's discussion of working class culture in the midst of sort of expansion of capital. And it seems to me that this becomes a place historically and it maintains that contemporarily of the place where the demands of labor, the controls of capitalism, the influence of the employer of the capitalist no longer have any effect upon you. It's a way to move outside of that and to reclaim time for the self 
reclaim agency and independence from the demands of labor. You can see it, like the way people sit in bars and it's kind of relaxed. Right, slumped over a little bit. Right? I mean, seriously, not just slumped over because you're drunk, but because you can feel like I can relax here. Mm-hmm. Or the way people may slouch in a chair and the precision that people normally would pay attention to, depending on their jobs, being outside of this space is now gone. Right. There's an unselfconsciousness that occurs. One stops thinking about oneself as a laborer, even if you go for like a supposed business meeting. We all know that, hey, let's go to the bar to talk about this thing from work. And we're like, yeah, okay, we're really talking about this thing from work. (laughs) And I love the fact that that space is able to affect and activate this side of people's self-awareness and consciousness. For me, what's interesting about that is, you know, in in Chicago, we have a lot of what I call old man bars. Um, (laughs) I love those. (laughs) So, you know, they're on the corner usually. They usually have an old style sign hanging out in front of them. The name of the bar is not really recognizable. And you walk in and there's like five, six, usually guys drinking old style. And what's interesting about these bars is it's a way of being social that doesn't necessarily involve getting in one another's business. Mm. Like these guys might have been drinking in the bar together for 30 years <laughs> and don't even know their, you know, their partner's <laughs> names or their right. children's names or maybe even where they live. Right. Well, here's the thing too, and this has kind of changed because of technology. I remember um, when I was younger and my dad would be out and I wanted to catch up with him, right? There are no cell phones in the seventies or really in the eighties. So you would have to call the bar. to track down your dad and you could see the bartender sort of in your mind cupping sort of receiver (laughs) hey charlie frank it's your son (laughs) (laughs) and then there's like that 10 second pause where i'm sure my dad is thinking "Eh, do i answer the phone or do i tell him i'm not here (laughs) but that's a great way to control access right at least at that point that phone that landline was the access point And I can deny it or I can accept it. It was up to me. That's why I have this now control of accessibility to me as well. So I think it also strengthens the sense of this being the secure sort of space for people to function in certain sort of ways. So I'm a regular at a bar near campus called The Local Option. Shout out to The Local Option. (laughs) One of the best beer bars in Chicago, although during COVID they've had to pivot. Anyhow, I'm a regular there. I I was supposed to be my mother and her husband one day after a dissertation defense that I was attending, and the restaurant we were supposed to meet at was closed, and they made their way to the local option without knowing my connection to it at all. (laughs) And they didn't have a cell phone, and so they asked the server, you know, could we use your cell phone? I need to call my son. He teaches at DePaul, and he was supposed to meet us there, and I want to let him know. He's here. And by the way, could you look up his phone number? I mean, maybe they even asked if there was a phone book. He's like, oh, what does your son teach? And my mom said philosophy. And he said, well, what's his name? Rick Lee. And the server said, well, the owner has his phone number. (laughs) And my mom's like, the owner has his phone number? What? Anyhow, so the server calls the owner, Tony, and says, Tone. Rick's mom is in here and she wants Rick's phone number. And Tony says, what does she want it for? (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Tony. He knows how to protect his customers. There you go. For me, what I love about it is that the question under those circumstances becomes, who are you in the context of that bar? Mm. Not who are you as spouse, as parent, as laborer, but who are you there? Who was Rick when he's sitting on that stool talking to Tony? Right. Right. And I think that's an important question, especially for certain populations that may have very few opportunities to assert a certain sense of themselves in public Mm. spaces. Mm. I mean, I also want to say that bars at which you are a regular are really important spaces. And just even as you were telling that story, I have to tell you, like I felt real physical pains in my heart because I haven't been in a bar since COVID started. And our local bars were a huge part of my life. There were many at which I was a regular. uh, (laughs) And it, it, it genuinely hurts to not be able to be there anymore. But this brings me to a question about what kinds of spaces are these? And there's a term in 
urban studies, like urbanists will call places like bars third places. They're not private and they're not public. Ah. So they're not the town square, but they're also not your home. They're these third spaces which have barriers. Again, not completely open, but they're not private in the sense that people can, of course, cross those barriers and enter them and make decisions about whether or not they belong there. That really resonates with me anyway as a good definition of a bar, a third space. And I'm not sure that I can think of other kinds of third spaces that have the same significance in my life anyway that bars have had. There's that book from years ago called Bowling Alone. Right. Um, Because I was thinking that bowling alleys used to be for some part of the population in the U.S. would be similar places. But bowling alleys are really just bars that have a really big game in it. Right, (laughs) exactly. And you look at all these supposed like public spaces that are really just bars that have this other affixed activity. So it's really a bar where people play professional baseball. It's really a bar where people play professional football. Yeah, My local bar is the Fev, and shout out to the Fev, the owners of the Fev, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes, created one of their premier cocktails, the Charles and Meredith, named after my wife and myself, and it was their Valentine's Day cocktail. But my second day of living in Oberlin, Ohio, back in 2000, I was like, oh my God, there's not a bar in this little town. Where should I go? And someone said, oh, you can go to the Fev. I'm like, oh, what's that? So I go into the Fev. And six hours later, like around two in the morning, I leave. (laughs) (laughs) Because the atmosphere was so embracing and so inclusive. Mm. And no one had known me, no one had seen me, but I felt like, right, it was comfortable. And it felt like it helped me to alleviate all of the awkwardness and the stress of being in a new town, a new job position, and not knowing anybody, especially like the colleagues and the peers that we had at that moment. Three months later, whenever I walk into that bar, the bartender, Dan, knew my drink. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't have to go up to the bar anymore and say, hey, I'll have this. I walked through that door. Glenn Livid on the rocks was waiting on the bar for me. Yeah. Right? So I like that idea of a third space. It's, it's not completely private. It's not completely public. But it's a very intimate and warm space where I could express a part of myself. Well, I was kind of a professor, but I was really kind of not. I was just kind of Charles. In that space. And I mean, I guess I'm going to be the one who goes for the most obvious joke here, but sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. (laughs) Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. One thing that I want us to think about as we think about bars as neither public nor private, but these third spaces is sort of what are the rules of that space? I quoted the Cheers theme song before. And, you know, in the chorus of that song, it says, you want to go where people know people are all the same. And it occurs to me that the bars in which I feel the most comfortable are where I feel like my identity is recognized, acknowledged, maybe even appreciated but also that I understand sort of who everyone is in the room. And conversely, there are bars, we all know this, that you walk in and then you're like, this is not my space, right? This is not a space for me. I do not want to be here. So yeah, let's talk about bars as sites of identity. And it sounded to me, you were saying, what are the rules of a bar? Yeah. And the rules of a bar, as you so effectively articulated, 
are the understood common beliefs of the people who frequent that bar, mm-hmm. right? And they're not established immediately, but what I love about them is that they are developed hammer on an anvil on a hot piece of metal that over the course of time, they're pounded into shape and they are manipulated and they're crafted to be a certain thing, right? So certain types of bars don't allow for certain types of behavior, Right. Perfect example. And what I love about this episode is that we're going to have a lot of stories and anecdotes. But a few years ago, a friend of mine who would hang out with me in my local said, hey, Charles, I have a question. I go to this other bar that's outside of town and, you know, they throw the N-word around a lot. And he's a white friend. And he's like, well, what should I do about that? I'm like, well, describe the place to me. He's like, well, it's kind of, you know, these guys are kind of working class guys. They're a little tough. They're working a steel mill. Yada, yada. He said, when I hear that word, what should I do? I was like, you should probably shut the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, go to, another bar. <laughs> yeah. go to another bar. Go to another bar or keep your business to yourself because you're not going to change these guys. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So clearly the rules of that bar are this is allowable. We can say racist things because everybody here, for the most part, is on board with that. So I was like, yeah, just take care of yourself. Right. No need for you to take one for civil rights in this moment. Mm. You're not going to win. Yeah. It's not the Senate. <laughs> It's not the Senate. Right? This isn't the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Right? It's, it's not worth that. But then I thought to myself, okay, I guess I won't be going to that bar. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I could imagine exactly what would happen, Charles, if you did go to that bar. The door would open, all faces would turn, and I would know immediately, and you would know immediately, and Lee would know immediately this is not a bar for you. Yeah. And nothing ha- would have to be said. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that these are unwritten rules. They're rules yeah. that you have to sort of feel out for yourself in the social interactions that happen inside that third space. I have a couple of examples of rule-governed bars where the rules are not written. Uh, One of them is college bars. So we all know when you walk into a bar, especially in the town where you work, and it's all college students, that there are very strict limits on the kinds of conversations you can have with whoever you're there with. You also know that you can't get quite as drunk as you might normally do because chances are that your students or students who know you are in that bar. Those are bars that sometimes I feel comfortable in, but are not bars that I go to if I really want to hang out and feel like myself. The other example is gay bars. And (laughs) I do think that there was a big change. It was in the 90s. So right around the time I was kind of coming into my adult self, where gay bars as distinct places were starting to disappear. Right. Um, So like, I mean, now I think every bar is a gay bar, (laughs) you know, almost. Right. So but gay bars as distinctly gay bars or lesbian bars were really starting to disappear. And it used to be in gay bars that, you know, straight people would show up on the night that they're like, let's go crazy and go to the gay bar, right? Or especially women, let's go crazy and flirt with other women or whatever. And it was kind of a understood thing in the gay bar for gay people that these are the straight people coming in here acting a fool. But it's fine, right. whatever. But th- there were limits to behavior that would be tolerated. As gay bars stopped being distinct places and as in general acceptance of LBGTQ people grew and everybody started going to gay bars because they are the best bars, that identity of the place really started to dissipate and it was no longer a safe haven anymore. And I'm not sure that there really are many of those left. And it's a, I think it's a sad thing. Yeah, in in the U.S. in particular, I I find that, although I have to say my experience is limited to large cities, but I would go often to the gay bar in Krakow, which I think looks like and feels like a gay bar from the 80s or 90s in the United States, because I think the acceptance in the general public of gay people is they're not welcomed. It's not an open society. And for God's sakes, now with their right wing government, it's actually quite dangerous, I think, to be openly gay in Poland. And so it's interesting that it had much more of the flavor and and also, by the way, the music was very much like you'd find in in, in here. I'm talking about a bar. Exactly. (laughs) 
But what was also interesting to me was because it was in Poland, although I speak Polish, I have an undeniable and unmistakable accent. From the moment I say it doesn't matter what the word is, the first word out of my mouth, I am unmistakably American mm-hmm. in my Polish accent. You know, when I've heard you speak Polish, I've caught that. <laughs> I thought that you have an accent when you speak Polish. Just, I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, just, I thought you know, he was going to say, from the first word that I speak in Polish, I'm undeniably straight. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But I think also in English, it is also the case. Um, but it was interesting. So they know that I'm from the U.S. So suddenly there is this moment of suspicion or question, I should say, a moment of question. Does he know where he is? I thought was part of their question. But then also, Lee, you're making me think of the flip side of that. Namely, can we be us? And if we can't, how do we get rid of this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and and so I think we have lost something in the loss of those very particular spaces. Yeah. Well, it's something very powerful about knowing that the marginal of a community or the underground of a community will have their bar. You know, mm. and I say this thinking about when I first went to grad school in Binghamton, New York, which at that point was just this small post-industrial town in the southern tier of New York. And it was really wasted in, in many ways, but still predominantly white and working class. And discovering the gay bars there and realize, oh, wow, I would not have anticipated based upon the bar scene, such a vibrant gay community in this town. It's completely belies the stereotype I had about the community. And then finding the one or two black bars that were there and begin to be immersed in realizing, oh, there's a very vibrant black community in this town. So I think that's an important thing. And to lose that, I think it's it's a shame. But in a weird way, I guess it's kind of success if we determine that as being an indicator of the levels of, of acceptance of embrace by the mainstream of a community of these formerly marginalized groups. Yeah, I don't know if I think it's a success or not. I mean, no, no, no. I'm not saying I agree, but I'm saying it could be interpreted as. Yeah, no, I, I think that many people probably interpret it that way. I, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure that I can really articulate this well, but I, I suppose that there is a kind of separate but equal in bars, you know, that people do need their own space and people can have their own space without that space being primarily defined as excluding other people, but rather, you know, being primarily defined as including a particular kind of people. And and I, I can hear as these words are coming out of my mouth, it's like, well, isn't that also true of like white supremacist bars, right? I don't know. Is this if if they sense? stick to their bars, I'm fine. Right. You can have your bars. You can, I want no piece of it. Just stay in your yeah. bar. Yeah. Malcolm X used to say that 12 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in American society. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue there are probably a large number of African-Americans who are like, good, because we like to worship the way we like to worship. Yeah. And we don't want that changed or challenged. And I think the same thing is for bars, because this is a place, certainly to some degree, a place where you're excluded. But at the same time, this is where I can affirm my identity, where I can work out questions of the identity, where we can come to certain communal morals and ethics and beliefs that we all subscribe to. I'm so glad that you said that because it turns out that another example of third places is churches. And for years and years and years, I said that Wild Bills here in Memphis, which is a juke joint here in Memphis, shout out to Wild Bills. You know, I was there every week on Saturday nights, you know, the Sabbath. And it, it, it served in many ways the same function as church used to serve for me when I went to church. It had a music that felt spiritually uplifting and replenishing for me. I felt like I was part of a community. There were certain rituals that were part of it. I think that in many ways it, it serves a lot of the same functions. So my mom grew up Catholic and grew up right behind a Catholic church. And one day we were driving about, I don't know, four blocks away from the house that she grew up in. And we pass another Catholic church and she's like, oh, that was my dad's church. And I said, mom, why why would he come all the way over here when you had a church right out your back door? She said, I don't know why he came here, but every afternoon my mom would say, go get your dad and we'd have to pick him up in this bar. (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, mom, he never went to church. 
She's like, what are you talking about? I said, no, he just came to the bar. That was his church. And it never dawned on her yeah. that he never went to church. Yeah. He just went to the bar. Oh, bless her heart. Oh, so sweet. Such faith in daddy. That's just absolutely. But also in the Catholic church that was my parish when I grew up, especially at the mass that was like around 1030 or 11 in the morning, all the men would peel off right before the church and go into a bar, which were closed on Sundays. Hmm. They go into the bar and I asked my aunt, what what are they doing in there? And she laughed and she said, that's the Rosary Society. I'm like, what do you mean the Rosary Society? And she said, well, if they hold a meeting of the Rosary Society, they can meet at the bar, but otherwise it's closed. I'll have a shot at a Jesus. Um, okay, sidebar. I went to a church my father's oldest sister, my aunt B, used to go to for years, and she was a church secretary for years. I won't name the church because I don't want to embarrass anybody. We were there one time for first Sunday, and we were taking the Eucharist, right? It was first Sunday, so we had the wafer and we had the wine. And I'm standing in line with my father because it's a really, really big church. And we both go, you smell that? The wine they were serving was wild Irish rose. <laughs> it wasn't grape juice like at my mother's church. It was wild Irish rose. Okay. And my father says, ooh, we may have to come back here again. <laughs> of course, the sad part is that both of us recognize the smell of wild Irish rose from 20 feet away. <laughs> I think one of the things also that helps to establish bars as places of identity are the ways in which they are depicted or discussed within popular culture. And for me, I, I know it's a good movie if there's a bar scene. And the better the bar scene, the better the movie. And I'm thinking about this <laughs> because I revisited the Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte movie uh, from 1981, I believe, 48 Hours. And I hope we can talk about this bar scene. But I always think about that bar scene as it was compared with the famous bar scene from Gene Hackman's 1971-72 movie, The French Connection. And so for those who don't know, both of these scenes have this dramatic clash along questions of race and culture through the dominance of the central character of the narrative. In the context of Gene Hackman, he's in pursuit of this French heroin dealer and the network of heroin dealers in New York. And he goes into Harlem and famously breaks up the bar and pushes people around and uses his badge, right? It's a well-shot scene, but obviously within the sociological racial dynamics of it, it's deeply problematic scene in terms of his ability to abuse the patrons of this bar. The Eddie Murphy scene in 48 Hours becomes really powerful as a response to that because Eddie Murphy does the exact same thing, but with a different racial context, where he, as a lone black man, walks into a country and Western bar, right? Really an indicator of a certain type of whiteness and a dangerous whiteness for people of color, and is able to by pretending to be a policeman, which speaks to the socially recognized power of that type of authority, is able to do the same sort of thing that Gene Hackman done, sort of abuse, muscle, deride, degrade, exemplify power in the context in a way that makes these white patrons, and there's a big Confederate flag at the back of the bar, so it really is indicator of their racial attitudes, is really able to dominate them over and against their ability to say no. So I think the ways in which bars get used in popular culture can be really incredible examples and criticisms of what are particular social and cultural dynamics at the moment, criticism or as well affirmation and recognition. I've been watching for the past couple of years a lot of 70s and maybe early 80s, particularly like crime and cop shows. And it's really interesting how often the felons are captured in a bar <laughs> or crucial pieces of information take place in a bar. There's a, a great Columbo episode where he actually finds out that a suspect actually isn't a suspect in a bar. And <laughs> it, it's just really interesting the role within these kind of expressions of authority, as you put it, Charles, on the one hand, and then the identity of the bar on the other hand. Like, is this a, a bar where fences hang out? Is this a bar where, you know, pickpockets hang out? Is this a cop bar? Or, or is it? A, yeah, the cop bar. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. 
And I think there's part of the ambiguity of the third space because there is an element of a kind of, I, I was about to say lawlessness, but as we were pointing out a while ago, the bar kind of has its own law. And the ability of the cops to do that in a bar partly depends on the complicity of the staff and owners of the bar, partly on the complicity of the patrons of the bar. And so therefore, in popular culture, it's often depicted precisely as this kind of third space. When I think about bars in popular culture, I often think that the identity of the bar is hyperbolized in a way that makes it not really register with my actual experience of being in a bar. So either the bar is a place of hyper romance, you know, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she had to walk into mine, right, from Casablanca, or bars are these like rowdy bar fight, you know, roadhouse uh, from the film Roadhouse locations, (laughs) or they're kind of, as you said, the location of the CD under life, for example, that you see in Goodfellas or any kind of mobster film, or they're cop bars, right? Uh, But to me, they all seem like not quite true of an experience of a bar. And again, I'm going to sound like I'm repeating myself (laughs) going back to Cheers, but Cheers was a real bar. And, And I get that there are obviously certain class and racial dynamics in the Cheers bar, but there was something about that television show that really registered for me the truth of a bar, the truth of the kind of community that exists in a bar, the sort of witty banter that exists in a bar, the commitment that barmates have to one another. And I would say besides the television show Cheers, that often songs about bars seem very true to me. So I I feel like the truth of the bar comes out better in music than it does in television and film. When you said bars and music, the the first song that popped into my mind, and this is another song where I'm like, how is this even a song? Is one more for my baby and one more for the road. (laughs) To the end of a brief episode Make it one for my baby And one more for the road You know, I've been there. I mean, I'm not about to get in my car like I think the singer of that song is, whoever sings it. I think Sinatra, isn't it? Well, he's one of them, yeah. yeah but yeah. Oh, okay. there have been many people who sing it. But I mean, you could imagine Sinatra then getting in a black Cadillac convertible at you know four in the morning and driving home drunk. That's also a very romanticized notion of a bar where the bartender is a therapist. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think about a lot of episodes of Bewitched where they'd end up in a bar, but only because either the workplace or the the home has broken down. Then one of the, the characters has recourse to the bar. So I'm trying to think of any other songs that depict bars really well. I was thinking about, um, what's the blues song? One bourbon, one scotch, and one beer? One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. Which isn't necessarily yeah. a yeah, depiction yeah. of a bar per se, but it's about this relationship between the bartender and the customer who yeah. needs these particular drinks. Rick mentioned the bartender as therapist. I do want to say, I, I think I'm the only one here who... Has been a bartender? No, I was or, a bartender. Have, were I, okay, so you know, I bartended my way through a lot of undergraduate life, and I don't think that that is a hyperbole. I think that my experience of being a bartender was often that you are a therapist. I do feel that being a philosopher is a lot like being a bartender sometimes, mm. that the kind of relationship that you have with people is about figuring out what they think, being able to carry on conversations with them, and hopefully from your side of the bar, make the conversations interesting. Also, sometimes just taking care of people and, you know, as you say, serving this kind of therapeutic function. And I think that that's also, by the way, listeners, why it was very important to the three of us, even though it's a conceit of this podcast, to have a bartender that has a name and is a fully fleshed out personality, right, that we actually interact with. I don't think that it would be a real bar, even even though it's an imagined bar that we're all in right now, it would be a real bar if it wasn't a, a real bartender that we could talk to. Yeah, and I, I mean, all I meant by hyperbolic was that 
again, maybe I'm thinking of too many scenes of Bewitched, but where like the patron says, I needed to come in and talk to my therapist or, you know, Mm -hmm. only you could help me out in this situation. Of course, there are lots of times especially if you're a regular, that the bartender will say, you know, how you doing? And you might say, oh, it's been a tough week. And you start talking about it. And and how's the wife and kids? (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it's, you know, and I agree with Lee that you do serve this function with especially regular customers, because I think it's also a space where for the most part, people feel they could enter and sit, share themselves without judgment. Mm. Right, The bartender isn't going to say, oh, you are a horrible person for doing this. They may say, you know, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about this? But it's never a place where you're going to be condemned for your actions. And I think that's part of the power of the bartender holding an objective position. This reminds me of our conversation with Jason Reed in the work episode from last year when he was talking about interacting with exact bartenders, I think was his exact example. And he says he likes me because I'm friendly and I tip him well and I'm a good customer. And he noted, you know, that it's a kind of relationship that from the customer side of the bar, you can't ever really know if the bartender really likes you. I mean, it's their job to like you. You know, it's their job to make you feel good and make you feel comfortable up until the point where you get cut off and then you really find out what the bartender thinks. (laughs) One last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay. But, you know, it's interesting because another popular depiction is, of course, Bukowski's Barfly. Yes. And Lee, in the men's room at Zeno's, a bar in State College, Pennsylvania, they had graffiti that was a quote from Bukowski that is, when you're drinking in a bar, the outside world still exists, but at least for the moment, it doesn't have you by the throat. And I think this is what makes it an interesting therapeutic setting. This goes back to, I think, both of your points is that I'm accepted, but this is a place where whatever it is that's bothering me stays outside and I'll have to go back out there. But at least for right now, this is a place where it doesn't have me by the throat. Yeah. And that's the private part of the bar. And the public part of the bar is whatever's out there or sometimes whoever's out there that bothers you could still come in. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So you have to keep that in mind too. I I do want to say two things. I also really love bar graffiti. For years of my life, I used to keep a catalog of pictures of my favorite bar graffiti. But the second thing is Rick said, there was this graffiti in the men's room, Lee at Zeno's, which is a bar in State College. And I just want to like, for the record, note that I have not spent a lot of time in the men's room at Zeno's, but I think that Rick was calling me out. Next next time you're there. Yeah. Next time you're there, Lee. I want to note for the record, Lee has not denied having been in the men's room, just having not spent a lot of time. No, that got all convoluted in my head. Here's the thought process. There's graffiti in Zeno's. Lee, you know Zeno's. Then I thought, but no one else knows what Zeno's is. So then I had to say it's a bar in State College and it's in the men's room. And somehow that all got connected to Lee, who probably, for all I know, wrote the graffiti in the men's room. I neither confirm nor deny that. Hey listeners, just a reminder that there's a lot of different ways that you can keep up with our conversations here at Hotel Bar Sessions. We're on Facebook and Twitter, of course. We also post each of our episodes to our YouTube channel every week. And you can, of course, subscribe and rate and even comment on our podcast on whatever podcasting platform that you listen to. But the most important way that you can support us and the way that we would really appreciate is to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and consider supporting us with a monthly pledge. We've got several different levels of patronage that you can sign up for from as low as four dollars a month to much higher than that but we especially are looking for people to support us at the designated driver level on our patreon page so again that's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions 
We really appreciate you. We really appreciate you listening to us. And please tell your friends. Now, back to the episode. One of the things I love thinking about the past 20 years or 25 years is the ways in which filmmakers have begun to really open up the cinematic view and world of African-American life. And we really see that with the understanding of the role and the importance of barbershops and beauty salons Mm. in African-American culture. Mm -hmm. Mm. Also third spaces. Yeah, but what I would love to see is finally getting a fairly accurate depiction of a black bar within popular culture that's not simply a foil for certain types of racial dynamics. Right. You know, I've seen these conversations, I've had these conversations where you have older black men who engage in the same contemplation and debate and argument and associations that you find within barbershops. That's very real. But I I can't say off the top of my head that I've seen a thorough and as engaged a depiction of that for the barscape as we do for barbershops. Yeah. And it's also interesting because in Chicago, at least, bars and beer halls were central places for labor organization, especially yeah. at the yeah. end of the, the 19th century, and therefore also became a site of regulation, either legal regulation or at least moral regulation. So a lot of talk about prohibition and teetotaling and so on, a lot of that is an attempt to curb behavior that could otherwise be revolutionary. And I think you don't get a depiction of that kind of experience of bars. I don't know that it still goes on anymore. I think in some communities it it does. I mean, for God's sakes, the sort of landmark date and the landmark place in the gay rights movement is a bar. Right. Uh Right. And, And so they are these sites of radicality that maybe because they're also sites of identity and sites, importantly, of leisure, right? So a gay bar is a place where we can talk about what matters to us in a comfortable way. And that leads naturally to, you know what, we ought to do something about this. Then, And that leads to the next step. And I think that this is one of the really interesting things for me about bars is the way they provide these kinds of spaces. I'm curious if You think that, both of you, that bars, with the exception of lesbian bars, of which, by the way, there are only nine left in the United States, (laughs) that every other kind of bar is... Is that a a real sort of... That's a real fact. Wow. Yes. I'm wondering if you guys think that bars are male spaces, because I, I do think that that's true. I don't think that, again, with the exception of lesbian bars that there's ever a bar where it feels like a woman's bar. And of course, I'm just kind of shorthanding here what everybody knows about bars, which is that, of course, if you're a female in a bar, you've always got to watch your drink and make sure that somebody walks you to your car and all of this implicit danger in the space. Well, I I was going to raise this earlier, but the conversation veered in a slightly different direction. And this partly has to do with the story I told about my grandfather, that I think we have to acknowledge that in the U.S., one of the main historical functions of bars was to provide men a space away from family. Yeah. And therefore, it sort of fits in with the relegation of women to the home and also, I think, leads to the fact that these are predominantly male spaces I think that's historical and fits the way in which patriarchy has been structured in the U.S. Yeah, it also fits the age-old distinction that we've been making between the public and the private, where the home is the space for the woman and the public is the space for men. But in between the kind of opening up of the public to women, there was this third space, which was almost exclusively a male space. And it's really interesting that the presence of women in bars in the U.S., primarily dates to prohibition, that speakeasies were among the first of these third spaces that were allowing both men and women to be there together. I mean, it's interestingly, because that would be an interesting way to distinguish between the bar and the club. Right. A club is not just a bar where dancing breaks out. No, no. Oh, I thought you meant a bar and a club, like a club where 
membership is required. No, you know, like, which like would be another club. private like space. Yeah. The gender politics are a bit more complex within yeah. a club yeah. versus in a bar. But also women yeah. have to watch their drinks. Oh, definitely have to watch your drinks. Well, because they're getting up and leaving the tables for a specific yeah. reason to go dance. Yeah. You know, versus a bar, you you plunk down and you're there, right? You settle in for a session. Yeah. I miss plunking down. I so miss plunking down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to ask each of you, and I'll answer the question myself. Can you name at least one of your top three favorite moments in a bar? Okay, so mine is actually just outside of a bar, standing on the patio, smoking a cigarette with my co-host, Rick Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and we were at a conference. Rick Lee was telling a story about how he had earlier in the day run into this student of his. So, you know, neither of us are in our city. It's a very weird thing that in this city, wherever we were, somebody that was formerly his student, he ran into. And then later in the day, ran into him again. And then I, I think maybe even three times in the same day, ran into him. So Rick is telling the story. And I was like, yeah, he just came up and was like, you know, I have your child, you know, or something like that. Like, I am your son or something. And so Rick and I made up this imaginary son of his that was named Ricky Effing Jr. Because whenever I see Rick, I call him Rick MFing Lee. <laughs> and so I, we, we made up this son, Ricky Effing Jr. And then for some reason, and Rick, I don't know how to explain how we got from just making this imaginary child up to suddenly deciding what would be the best way to eat him. <laughs> we, started, oh we started talking about all these different ways. He was like, yeah, we could have sushi or like barbecue or whatever. And it has been literally a running joke for, I, I don't know, how many years? Uh, long, ten, 10 at least. At, at least. least 10 years, it has been this running joke between us. It's like, how is the best way to prepare Ricky Effing Jr. for yeah. a meal? <laughs> like where he would be the meal. <laughs> Have you suggested smoking him? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, low Put and slow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Low and slow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, Rick. Mine also involves my co-host, Lee. And this is just because, you know, Charles, I've only known you for, what, now 18 months or maybe even less. <laughs> but I'm dying to develop memories of being in bars with you. But Lee was in, I think, for the Central APA once. And with our friend Emma Bianchi, shout out to Emma. Ammon was there as well. Shout out to Ammon. And I know of a bar on the near north side of Chicago that allows smoking in it. Oof. And so the group of us went to this bar and we just had a delightful time. And there are pictures. <laughs> um, go on Lee's Facebook page to see pictures <laughs> of the shenanigans that went on in this bar. I will say they're allowed to do. Well, they're not allowed. They do this because and Lee, you could correct me if I'm wrong. The staff of this bar looks like extras from The Sopranos. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> what about you, Charles? Um, one of my best friends had been studying abroad in England and had been gone for the semester, and I really missed him. So his first time back in town after coming back from England, we decided to meet up at this particular bar in Johnson City, New York. And we got there like five minutes early. So we just said, fuck it. So we sat on the steps of this bar for like five or seven <laughs> minutes waiting for it to open. And it was so hot. It was so humid because it was like late May in upstate New York. And we just sat there. They finally opened up the bar. We were the only customers in there. The air conditioning had been on. It was completely dark. It's like when these bars damn near no windows. I remember sitting at the bar in the air conditioning with my best friend. We both ordered Honey Browns. And Neil Young was playing on the jukebox. And I mm. thought, this is a perfect goddamn moment. That's a good feeling. All right. Well, Noelle is signaling last call um, while she's pouring our last drinks. Any last thoughts you all have? I wanted to just say that I think Rick mentioned it briefly, but we didn't really talk about it. But I think the best way to kind of get a sense of a place, a city or a state even, is to know the blue laws of that mm. state. In Memphis, we have really weird blue laws. Our bars stay up until 3 in the morning. But weirdly, if you're at a bar at 3 in the morning, they'll take your bottle of beer and pour it into a plastic cup, and then you can keep 
drinking. So that it just make, makes no sense at all. You know, blue laws are also a really interesting way that places where bars are identify themselves. Yeah. Charles, any last thoughts during last call? Two quick points. I think the best way to get a sense of a city is to spend some time in its bars. Yeah. And the best way to get a sense of a person is to spend some time with them in a bar. Wow. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cosign. Yeah. I'll sign on to that. My last thought is, and Lee mentioned this earlier, but it's worth mentioning again, find a bar and be a regular. Lots of good things follow from that. Right. (laughs) I guess we're done. Oh, God. Should I call a cab? No, you don't need to call a cab because we have a Patreon subscriber at the designated driver level. So people who aren't yet subscribers, please go to our Patreon page to just help support defray the costs. We're not asking to make money, but just to defray the costs. We have several different levels, and one of them is our designated driver. And so Jason Reed is our designated driver this week. So I'm going to go ahead and give him a call. And while he's coming, I'll just say goodbye to y'all. Yeah, and y'all, our Patreon account is at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. All right. This has been a great conversation, guys. Thanks for letting me take the hot seat. Shotgun. (laughs) (laughs) Time to take your drunken ass home. It's all right. If you don't know what to do with yourself, take your drunken ass home. Thank <laughs> you.